usually women's irons begin to increase after menopause. Naturally, before that, because of menstruation, iron levels are normal or, or lower. But after menopause or thereabouts, when the menstruation ceases or, de or declines in frequency or amount, iron begins to build up. Mm -hmm. And uh, but again, we we need to have iron. It's not like iron is an evil one. It's just that too much of it. So people supplement it. You take a, a multivitamin, right? And that has all the vitamins and all the minerals. When perhaps you already have a condition where you haven't too much iron accumulation, and that might be a problem. Welcome to the Good Medicine Podcast. During this series of podcasts, we will explore thought-provoking topics related to health and wellness and take a fresh look at how integration of modern medicine with ancient methods of healing are leading the pathway to better therapeutic strategies, yielding long-lasting positive results. That and much more on the Good Medicine Podcast with your host, Fernando Bernal. Welcome to another episode of the Good Medicine Podcast. I am accompanied by my wife, Beth. Together, we're going to bring this show to you, and hopefully it will be entertaining and informative. How are you doing, Beth? I'm doing fine. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you. Happy that you're here. Thank you. Great to be here. So last week, you discussed, in your first episode, you talked about blood chemistry, that you do that in your office. So I was wondering, frequently asked question is, what is the importance of getting your labs done and having knowledge and understanding your lab work? Well, that's, that's a twofold question. The importance of having labs done, of course, that's important, but also equally important, in my opinion, very important, that every person that has labs done has an understanding, even at a, at a very basic level, of what is in their chemistry, in their blood chemistry. Because the more knowledgeable you are, the better equipped you are to make decisions uh, for your own health care or to understand why there are certain things that you should be doing or not doing because the chemistry is there and you can follow a trend, if you will, by looking at previous labs and then the future labs, you can see if there's improvement or not. So it's important that we know what we're looking at. So when you do your labs, what kind of lab testing do you do? Well, I, I think that it depends on why the patient is there. I think this is true with every physician. Why are you here? Are you here for your annual physical? Are you here because something's bothering you? And based on the reason why the patient is there, what type of labs you would order. For example, if a patient is coming for their annual physical because their company requires that they have a physical every every year, you might probably have a physician run a basic panel, like for example, a complete blood count. A complete blood count will tell you all about your white blood cells, your red blood cells, your platelets, and that, 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 that type of thing, that sort of thing. He or she may also order part of a basic panel, complete metabolic panel. A complete metabolic panel consists of all your electrolytes, uh, protein levels in your body. It may also include kidney function. That's another one that's usually very common order. Your potassium levels, calcium levels, phosphate levels, uh, and so on. Also, usually part of this is uh, a lipids panel. A lipids panel would have all your cholesterol, total cholesterol, as well as your HDL, the so-called good cholesterol, and the LDL, the so-called bad cholesterol, your triglycerides. Hopefully, uh, you have ratios as part of it. And, and let me say here, Beth, and we will discuss this more in future podcasts, is that this whole idea of good and bad cholesterol is really off. It's, there is no such thing as bad cholesterol. 
It's just cholesterol. But anyway, uh, I digress. The basic panels will include those, a complete metabolic panel, complete blood count panel, and a lipids panel. So somebody comes to you, would you test for deficiencies or excesses with minerals and vitamins? That's a good question because it's important that we have all the ingredients that makes us live, right? We need macronutrients, uh, which includes the fats and carbohydrates and uh, proteins, but we also need micronutrients, which includes all the minerals and the vitamins. Some of these tests for vitamins are very expensive. So unless someone is presenting symptoms that may indicate a deficiency on a given nutrient, uh, usually they're not tested for. Uh, with the exception of usually vitamin D, many physicians will test vitamin D. Uh, also B, B12, they're, they're tested often. But outside of that, usually not. However, there are some biomarkers, and I, and I explained last week what a biomarker was, but it's a measurement of some type of, of substance like glucose, for example, sugar levels. There are some biomarkers that when they're off, it may not necessarily be due to some pathology. Instead, it may be due to a deficiency of a given nutrient, case in point, glucose. If someone's glucose is high, over 100, say 110, 105, thereabouts, 99 is the usual uh, high end of most labs. We prefer to see that a little lower if it's fasting glucose. But if the sugar is high and the other biomarkers are not, like what's known as the hemoglobin A1C, which is usually measured to see if you're diabetic or pre-diabetic, if that is normal, and but your sugar is high, it's very possible that perhaps it's a deficiency of vitamin B1, thiamine. Vitamin B1 is very important for the proper metabolism of carbohydrates in the body before they're used for energy production. So that would be a way to determine, to help determine if perhaps there is a deficiency of a given vitamin. Some of the enzymes that uh, are used in the body require vitamin B6. So if we see a deficiency in those enzymes, we may, based on other symptoms and other biomarkers, come to an idea that perhaps this person is deficient on vitamin B6. Some thyroid function, for example, requires the presence of iodine and other nutrients for the thyroid to function properly or for the conversion of the hormones to their active form. So in a way, some of these nutrients can be measured by the levels of some of the molecules in the body, but directly measuring for vitamins like C, for example, for, or minerals like zinc, usually not. So most doctors will not run these tests on vitamin and minerals, correct? As insurance probably won't pay for it. Again, you know, that's another point there, insurance coverage. In our practice, we do not bill insurance companies for our services. So it's cash, it's out of pocket. That gives Isn't us a, that expensive? No, actually, it's not. And I'll explain that in a minute. But a lot of times, uh, before a doctor, a physician can order a given lab, he or she needs to order something else first in order for the insurance to cover that other lab. And, you know, it's not really fair to the patient because if certain biomarkers come out of range, now the patient has to go back again to have labs done for the other tests that could have been done at the same time. Now, some tests are very specific, and you really have to be showing some serious pathology in order for them to order. I get that. 
But basic things like, for example, if I wanted to do an iron panel. Mm -hmm. Well, if you're not showing signs of anemia, why should I do it? And if I do, will the insurance cover it? Maybe they'll cover iron, but there are other biomarkers that they will, will not cover unless you have already tested something else first. I would think that it would be important to test somebody's iron because a lot of people supplement with iron and they don't know where their levels are. And you can actually over-supplement, from what I understand. Iron is, is a two-edged sword. You have mm -hmm. to have iron in order to live, right? Just like copper. we got to have that. If we don't have it, we don't function properly. Iron deficiency is the number one source of anemia in the world. But is the patient showing signs of anemia? You know, there are over 400 types of anemia. Well, how would you just be able to differentiate why, uh, what the deficiency is from? Well, that's a good question. And that's where the labs come in. That's where the blood count, complete blood count comes in. So the cells in our in our blood, the red blood cells, there ought to be a certain size and diameter, average size and diameter. If those cells are too small or if they're too big, they can give us an idea of the type of anemia the person has. Of course, first you go by the symptoms. The patient says they're tired, they're fatigued, they don't have a lot of energy. You look at their nails, the nails look pale. You look under their eyes, you know, you pull the eyelid down and you see that it's pale. And, and so the symptoms and the physical signs are indicating to you that perhaps this patient has suffering from anemia. So now what type of anemia? So you look into the labs, say you already ordered the labs and you see the red blood cells are a certain size. Usually if they're small cells, red blood cells, what's known as microcytic anemia, small cells, usually is a sign of iron deficiency. Big cells are usually a sign of B12 deficiency. But there is anemia of chronic disease. There's anemia of copper deficiency. Uh, there are so many different types of anemia, but the most common is iron deficiency anemia. So if the patient is presenting symptoms that merits ordering a complete iron panel, that would be one way to justify or to verify or diagnose that the person has iron deficiency anemia. Was that your question? Uh, yes. But you could also take too much iron, correct? Well, yeah. I mean, there are people taking, you know, iron, like I said before, is a two-edged sore. Too much iron can cause a problem. If it passes in the tissue, it can create problems. Especially for men and women over uh, after menopause. That is exactly right. Usually, women's irons begin to increase after menopause. Naturally, before that, because of menstruation, iron levels are normal or, or lower. But after menopause or thereabouts, when the menstruation ceases or, de or declines in frequency or amount, iron begins to build up. Mm -hmm. And uh, But again, we, we need to have iron. It's not like iron is the evil one. It's just a, too much of it. So people supplement it. You take a, a multivitamin, right? And that has all the vitamins and all the minerals. When perhaps you already have a condition where you have too much iron accumulation, and that might be a problem. Right. That's why it's good to check your labs and your minerals, etc. As so supplementing just willy-nilly is not a good idea sometimes. I don't think it's a good idea to supplement willy-nilly. <laughs> <laughs> well... That's, it's good to find out where you're at before you supplement. I mean, some supplements can cause more harm than good. So it's good to have your blood work done. And this is true perhaps like for the 
fat-soluble vitamins. You know, vitamins such as vitamin D. Yeah, and A. So you have water-soluble vitamins and you have the fat-soluble vitamins. The water-soluble vitamins are easy to excrete, but the fat ones are are not. Right, because well, what I understand is with the COVID and everything, uh, all the doctors or people were saying to take vitamin D, vitamin D to prevent uh, mitigating any symptoms. And uh, vitamin D is fat-soluble, correct? And Yes, it is. And taking too much could be a problem. It's an interesting subject and one that one day we should actually spend a whole episode uh, on this topic because there is a rampant supplementation of vitamin D right now. A lot of people are supplementing with vitamin D, high levels of vitamin D. And they don't know where they're at. They A, just, they don't know where they are, but B, more if they even need it. Right. Equally important is the research, and, and I have read plenty of papers on this, the research that shows that supplementing with vitamin D is really not necessary at a certain level. So the levels of vitamin D from the labs, usually between 30 nanograms per milliliter mm-hmm. to 100 nanograms per milliliter. And if you are between 20 and 30, it is considered not a deficiency, but an insufficiency. Below 20 is considered a deficiency of vitamin D. So many doctors like to see their patients have their vitamin D levels around 50, 60 nanograms per milliliter. Some are very happy if it goes higher, but there's a problem with that. First of all, the research that I have been looking at is suggesting that anywhere between 35 to 45 nanograms per milliliter is adequate, plenty. So a lot of people are supplementing with a lot of vitamin D, and we have to remember that what what is the main purpose of vitamin D? Well, isn't vitamin D a hormone? It is a hormone. It's not an actual vitamin. It's, it's, a, it's, exactly. it's, it's, it's a, a hormone. Vitamin. It's a hormone, exactly. And the body makes its own because, you know, through sunlight, mm-hmm. a few minutes of sunlight, uh, the right regions of your body can produce sufficient vitamin D to carry on. So it is a hormone. And as a hormone, it's stored in fat tissue. So we, when we do a series of, of uh, podcasts on the nutrients, on the micronutrients, we will touch on vitamin D again because it is important that we take the right amount of the micronutrients at the right time. Talking about vitamin D, you know, the main purpose besides also being involved in the immune system, uh, vitamin D is for calcium. And at some point, if you take too much vitamin D for too long and you begin to build up calcium levels, that may not necessarily be a good thing. Could cause calcification? Exactly, calcification. So usually if you're going to take vitamin D, and and I'm going to close on this topic for now on the vitamin D because I I want to go back to the blood chemistry. But if you take a vitamin D, you might consider taking it with K2. Why is that? What happens is if the body senses that we're low on calcium, there is a gland called the parathyroid gland that sends a signal to the kidneys, tells the kidneys, listen, I want you to take the inactive form of vitamin D, and I want you to activate it because we can't run low on calcium. So the kidneys do exactly that. They will take the vitamin D and make it an active form. This active form of vitamin D will travel to the intestines, and it will say to the intestines, listen, we need to get some calcium, and we need to absorb calcium. When this person eats uh, green leafy vegetables or any kind of food that has calcium, I want you to absorb as, as much calcium as possible because we're deficient. 
and that's what happens. However, if too much calcium is circulated through the body, we end up with what you just said, calcification. So vitamin K2 takes that calcium and places it where it belongs, which is in the bones. And the body will use the calcium that it needs, the free calcium, as, as is needed. So there is a balance between taking vitamin D and keeping appropriate calcium levels. So case in point, that's why it's it's important to find out your levels on so many uh, issues. So when somebody comes to see you, do you, you have a blood panel that you do, and you explain this, you go in depth and explain everything, break it all down. Whereas if you go to your regular doctor sometimes, not always, but they might say, yeah, everything's okay, and that's about it. Is that right? We do uh, a complete, it's, it's a very extensive panel that we do. It includes a lot of biomarkers or substances that are normally not ordered by everyday practice. When we get the results, we then create a report. We call that a report of findings. And we sit down with the patient and go through their labs. How long does that usually take? The actual report of findings? Mm-hmm. Average between 45 minutes to an hour. Mm, that's pretty uh, intense. It is pretty intense, and sometimes it seems like it's information overload because there's so much information. And patients are always welcome to come to the clinic if they need more information about their labs. So, uh, yeah, it's pre- pre- pretty intensive. Are you then, at that point, giving a diagnosis? That is <laughs> that is an excellent question, Beth, because the whole purpose of doing the blood chemistry for the patient and the final report of findings is really more for education. I do not give a diagnosis. First of all, it's out of my scope of practice to give a diagnosis of diabetes, of liver disease, or anything like that. That's out of our scope. My job is to educate, and that's the whole idea behind doing the report of findings or doing the blood chemistry to educate the patient. The patient, in turn, then will take this back to their regular doctor, their specialist or their MD, their primary care provider, whoever it is, and hopefully they will discuss the report and the doctor can make their own assessment or whatever they, they think is going on based on the labs that we draw from the patient. So no, we don't make a diagnosis. We uh, basically do this for educational purposes and the patient will do with it as they see fit to do. So to make things clear, in Chinese medicine, our diagnosis is somewhat different from what a Western medicine a physician will diagnose. We have different terminology, different language, based on a different approach of assessing the condition of the patient by looking at the tongue, feeling the pulse, asking uh, a lot of questions, uh, looking at the patient, listening to the patient. And then we have our own form of diagnosis, which is different from that of an allopathic physician. So I thank you for being here, Beth. I'm glad that uh, we did this together, and let's do it again. Okay. Uh, any ideas what we're going to discuss next week? I think that I would like to continue on the topics that are around blood chemistry analysis. Uh, there is so much to talk about, uh, glucose management, lipids management, 
And uh, cholesterol is a big topic. Cholesterol is a big topic. And perhaps maybe next week we'll start out talking about cholesterol because there is so much information out there and so much misunderstanding about cholesterol. You know, I've said in the past this idea of good cholesterol and bad cholesterol, that there is no such thing as bad cholesterol. It's just cholesterol. Uh, And maybe, maybe we'll do that next week. Uh, unless a listener has a suggestion for something else. Uh, and also, if you're missing this podcast, uh, you can log into our website at uh, thegoodmedicinepodcast.com and listen to previous podcasts that we have done here. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to The Good Medicine Podcast. To learn more about our practice, see us on the web at thegoodmedicinepodcast.com or call us at 904-806-7123. That's 904-806-7123. Thank you for listening.